So today for the New Books Network Genocide Podcast, this is Natasha Margulis, and I'm interviewing Alex Kay on his new book, uh, The Making of an SS Killer, The Life of Colonel Alfred Filbert, 1905 to 1990. Alex, thank you for joining me today. I was hoping that you could introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you came across Albert Filbert. Thank you, Natasha, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Yes, I'm originally from England, from Yorkshire. Uh, but I've been based in Germany for quite some years now. I actually did my PhD here in 2005 at the Humboldt University in Berlin. And now I'm a lecturer at the University of Potsdam. Um, How I came across Alfred Filbert? Well, I specialised early on in the history of Nazi Germany, specifically uh, mass killing policies and, and genocide. And... I think it's important to understand what happened both from the perspective of the victims and the perspective of the perpetrators, because I think for any of us, for you or me or anybody who might be listening, I think the the moral danger is of becoming a perpetrator, not of becoming a victim. And therefore, I've always been fascinated and tried to understand these events from the point of view of the perpetrators. And I think we know a lot about um, the leading figures in Nazi Germany and the leading figures behind the Holocaust, people like Hermann Goering, Heinrich Himmler, um, of course, Adolf Hitler. There are many biographies on these people, but we know much less about the direct perpetrators, the people who were out there in the killing fields who were actually taking part in the mass shooting operations. And this is particularly true for the SS Einsatzgruppen, the mobile task forces that were deployed in Eastern Europe. And um, of the men who led these groups and commanders between mid-1941 and 1944, we um, were a total of between 70 and 80 of them. And we have biographies for maybe three or four of them. So we actually know very little about these people. So that was kind of my starting point. And then I looked at various people, you know, who could, who can could I write about, uh, on whom is there sufficient source material, really, because that's the problem with these these people from kind of the middle tier or the the second tier of the hierarchy. Um, there's often very very little source material and very very little literature, and um, just. During the course of these, uh, this preliminary research, I came across Alfred Filbert. And the more I read about him and the more I delved into his background, the more I found out and the, the more I realized that there's actually quite a lot of source material on this guy. And also that his, his life was just in, in some ways representative of many other Holocaust perpetrators, but also quite unique, really. And it looks like that you had an interesting paper trail that you followed through 33 archives and seven countries to gather the material for this book. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, yes. Uh, I just kept discovering, as you said, paper trail, and, and it led in, in, in various directions. And I think if you're going to write a biography like this, you, you've got to follow all those paper trails and follow every single avenue and... It took me to places that I wouldn't have expected. 
and in directions that I wouldn't have expected. And I'm really grateful for that in a way because that wasn't clear when I started, when I embarked on the project. Uh, it could have turned out very, very differently to that. I just am extremely impressed about the amount of material that you were able to dredge up about Albert Sober. Like you said, there's really great paper trails and archival evidence and documents and records for some of the big guys. Anybody was in the Nuremberg trials and things like this, but you've, you've found an interesting way to bring this intriguing subject to the forefront. So I wanted to ask you if you had read, um, you know, this biography of Filbert, um, that somebody else might have written it. Do you think his childhood and his experiences growing up would have indicated how he would end up? That's a very good question because I, I don't think his upbringing was necessarily so different to that of his contemporaries. Um, he was a member of the so-called war youth generation, which means that he experienced the First World War, but not as a soldier himself. So he was he was an adolescent during the First World War. His father was a company commander, a captain in the um, Imperial German Army. And so he experienced it at close quarters, but not at first hand. So he wasn't actually in the trenches himself. Um, and that applied to, obviously, many people of his generation, that they were too young to fight in the war, but they were old enough to know what was going on and also experience the impact of the defeat of the German defeat in 1918. Um, and I think also his upbringing was a very strict one. Uh, his father was away from home a lot, but his, his mother was extremely strict with him. And there was one incident that I came across, which I found quite remarkable and perhaps indicative. And that was when he, as a boy, as a as a as a young teenager, he injured himself playing outside, and his mother came out, and the first thing she did was not to ask him, oh, "Have you hurt yourself or what happened?" but actually to beat him. And it subsequently transpired that he'd actually broken his leg, and I thought this was um, yes a pretty um, tough upbringing that he experienced. And I think that was probably quite indicative for many families at the time in the early 20th century. Um, perhaps not for all, but I think it was quite representative. And, and, and therefore, I don't know if his upbringing alone explains the man he later became. So when he joined the Nazi party, he joined it kind of early on. What kind of uh, member was he? How arduous would you say that? Filbert um, was in his Nazism? I think he was an ardent Nazi. And yes, he joined the party before it came to power in Germany. And he also joined the, the paramilitary wing of the party, if you will, the SS, which was um, effectively reserved for the elite of the Nazi movement. Uh, and he he actually joined the SS around the same time as he joined the Nazi party. So already he was quite radical um, because it was perhaps at that time becoming increasingly common to join the Nazi party, but not to join the SS. I mean, this was really a statement to join the SS at that time before the Nazis came to power in Germany. 
So already early on, I think it, it undergone this kind of political socialization in the Rhineland and uh, was already a committed Nazi at that point. And it seems like that this Nazism worked out very well for him. He was rising kind of quickly through the ranks, but then something happened. What do you think changed um, his path in the Nazi party? Yeah, he he definitely then decided at some point to make a career out of it, out of uh, working for the regime, working for the Nazi party and its organizations. Uh, he could have had a career in law. He was a lawyer. He was a qualified lawyer. He'd done his legal training in Hessen or uh, Hesse, as it's more commonly known in English. Um, but he made this very conscious decision in 1934 to become a full-time um, employee of the SS Security Service, the SD. Um, and he really, as you say, he had a very... Um, very promising career, uh, moved swiftly through up through the ranks. And yeah, then something happened um, to kind of bring that progression to quite a sudden halt. And that was uh, relating to his brother, his older brother, Otto Filbert, who had spent 12 years in the United States and was persuaded to return to Germany in 1938 by uh, his parents and by his by his brother, Alfred Philbert. Um, but he couldn't really come to terms after 12 years in the States. He couldn't come to terms with this um, you know, tyrannical dictatorial regime in Germany, the restrictions placed on people's uh, social lives, family lives, careers. And um, after an attempt on Hitler's life in November 1939, he made a rather careless and critical statement about this in front of a couple of work colleagues, and he was denounced to the Gestapo. And he was arrested and put on trial. And this actually then had the effect of putting a, an at least temporary halt on his brother's career in the in the SS and within the regime. So it seems like that's kind of like a power source behind Silbert's next phase of his life and what he wants to do in the Nazi party. And so he kind of switches gears because of Otto's unfortunate comment. Um, so can you talk about Filbert's role in as an Einsatzkommando? Of course. Yes, you're absolutely right that this was a key turning point. This was the first of several key turning points. Um, the way he reacted to the denunciation and arrest of his brother. It didn't make him turn against the regime in any way whatsoever. On the contrary, it gave him the feeling that he had to prove himself all the more so in the eyes of the regime to distance himself from the politics of his brother and the fate of his brother and to become an even more fanatical and radical Nazi. Uh, and he had an opportunity about 18 months after Otto's arrest to volunteer for one of these SS Einsatzkommandos, which were tasked with um, pretty unpleasant tasks in the occupied Soviet territories. Uh, one of the main tasks was to murder um, political and racial enemies of the regime, first and foremost, 
Soviet Jews. And he actually, Alfred Philbert actually volunteered to become uh, a commander of one of the subunits of one of the Einsatzgruppen, uh, Einsatzkommando 9, which was deployed in Lithuania, Belarus, and then later in Russia as well. Um, and there are, I was able to dig up examples of of other um, people from the SS security services who were tasked with becoming an Einsatzkommando chief or an Einsatzgruppen chief and managed to wriggle out of it, managed to get themselves reassigned because they didn't actually want to be on the front line, um, you know, killing Jews by the thousand. And the interesting thing is that uh, it's clear that Alfred Philbert never made any attempt to get out of this position. He, he actually volunteered for, for this position and, uh, in order to prove himself. So I guess your research has further backed up Christopher Browning's research in that these men had the opportunities to not take on these roles, to not have to participate in these executions. But Albert Filbert was really good at what he did. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes, I, I would agree. Um there were definitely opportunities, as I've said, and, and, and Christopher Browning's uh, research on the so-called ordinary men in the Holocaust was obviously groundbreaking. Um, and Christopher Browning looked at people who were perhaps not um, radical, fanatical Nazis. Uh, they really were ordinary men, um, but they had opportunities to opt out of the killing process without having to be afraid that they would be imprisoned or their family would be threatened or they would have to fear for their lives. Uh, and it was actually the same even for people who were very much part of the regime and members of the Nazi party, members of the SS like Filbert, that they also had opportunities which they could have exploited to opt out of, let's say, the more unpleasant aspects of the killing process of the machinery of killing. And Filbert, for one, did not take these opportunities. Uh, again and again, he failed to take these opportunities. Um, and he did precisely the opposite. He, he actually volunteered repeatedly and put himself in positions where, yes, as you say, he, he would have to, would have to um, carry out these extremely unpleasant tasks. And he excelled at it. He, he, proved to be an extremely radical and efficient commander of, of a killing unit, basically. And you've broken up his um, career in the Einsatzkommando 9 into two chapters. What's different about these two parts of his career in that group? Well, yes, I've, I've uh, split it up into uh, the, first, the first period covers maybe the first five or six weeks of the um, military campaign against the Soviet Union, so-called Operation Barbarossa. And then the second period covers the rest of his time as an Einsatzkommando chief. And during these first five or six weeks until the end of July 1941, Filbert behaves more or less like all the other Einsatzkommando chiefs behave. And they basically targeted, in their killing operations, they targeted um, the so-called Jewish intelligentsia, 
leaders of the Jewish community, um, Jewish males of military service age. And that was fairly a fairly uniform approach across all the um, four Einsatzgruppen operating in the occupied Soviet territories. But from the end of July, we see a very clear and radical shift. And we witness this shift, first of all, um, on the part of Alfred Filbert's Einsatzkommando 9, that he is the first of all the Einsatzkommando chiefs to move over to killing women and children and eventually entire Jewish communities. And I've termed this the trans transition to genocide in the occupied Soviet territories. Uh, and he he is the first one who does this, and then all the others follow suit. So that is a that is a, not only a decisive turning point in Filbert's own career, but also decisive turning point in the Holocaust. And you had mentioned at one point that um, the, I guess you'd say the upper leadership had made comments that the numbers for his killing unit and some other killing units were not as high as they should have been. And so how did that affect Filbert? I, I actually interpret that as, uh, and we, we only really have Filbert's word for that. Um, his, his immediate boss, uh, Artur Neber, who was head of Einsatzgruppe B, he, he is definitely reprimanded by Himmler and Heydrich. They make a visit uh, to the occupied Soviet territories and, and, and they criticise Neber uh, for the absence of, of, a, of a unit in a, in a particular town in Lithuania. And it could be this criticism that, that, that is then passed on down the line to Filbert. It's not entirely clear. Filbert uses this alleged criticism as the reason when he passes on these new orders to his own officers as the reason for them having to kill more people. Um, I, I do wonder, however, whether this was just his way of, shall we say, selling it to his own officers and his own men. Um, because he he knew the real reasons why this transition to genocide was desirable on the part of the regime, and he had to find some way of selling it to his men, to his officers. You know why are we now being forced to kill to kill women and children? Because of course many of these men had their own wives and children back home in Germany, and even for members of an SS, SS Einsatzkommando, it wasn't an easy thing to do to make this transition to killing women and children in cold blood. So I actually think I actually think Filbert probably uses this as a way of persuading them, as a way of coaxing them. You know, we've been we've been told that we're not killing enough people. This is how we've got to respond. Um, but I think. Any type of criticism, as we know from other examples, any type of criticism or reprimand had a, a radicalizing effect on Filbert, that he then doubled his efforts in order to, as I said earlier, prove himself to his superiors and, and prove himself in the eyes of the regime. And after reaching this point where basically they're committing full-on genocide, um, he goes back 
home. And how does his career change from leaving the front lines to going back to Germany? That, that's also a, quite a, a sudden change for him. Uh, in October 1941, after four solid months uh, leading this killing units behind the front lines in the east, he returns to Berlin and he's actually promptly arrested for um, misappropriation of SS funds. Um, and he's placed under house arrest and is investigated and effectively is sidelined for about two years. And naturally, for him, this is a this is a, a major shock. You know, he's just been on the uh, on the front lines in the east for four months, killing literally thousands of Jews. Thought that he was proving himself in the eyes of the regime, and then this very regime that he's been serving actually orders his arrest. Uh, upon his return to, to Berlin. So this is a great shock for him, and particularly the reason for his arrest. Um, that, you know, he protests his innocence. He says, you know, I would, I'm an upstanding guy. I would never do this kind of thing. I would never misappropriate funds. I would never steal. Um, you know, this is the perverse Nazi mindset and mentality that it's okay to murder hundreds of thousands, millions of people, that's a duty, but uh, to actually steal something, whether it's a ring or a wristwatch or a fair coat, that's absolutely unacceptable. And uh, Philbert is very keen to uh, to establish his innocence, uh, but he doesn't, take, he doesn't succeed initially. Eventually he's cleared of all these charges, and I think there were actually fake charges in many ways, um, Philbert was associated with a couple of other people within the uh, security service. Heinz Joost uh, was one of them who was a, a, a rival of Heydrich's. And I think Philbert was guilty by association. And that's why he was, you know, placed on the sidelines for two years. But he was eventually able to clear his name and is, is reintegrated into the security service around 1943. And by the end of the war, and when Hitler commits suicide, what is, is Filbert still a loyal Nazi, or is he doubting his own role in any way? No, not at all. He's, he's definitely still a committed Nazi. Again, this is another of these turning points for Alfred Filbert that I mentioned earlier. Um, in, the, in the final year of the war, there's the, there's the attempt on Hitler's life in July 1944, and... Um, Philbert's boss, Arthur Neber, who had also been his boss uh, in the East as uh, chief of Einsatzgruppe B, he is actually arrested for plotting against Hitler's life and the whole organisation is, is restructured and Philbert is given uh, more power, more authority because at the end of the day, he's somebody on whom the regime can rely and he's proved that time and time again, and he proves it again in the wake of this uh, attempt on Hitler's life in July 1944. And he remains in a, quite a prominent position uh, within the criminal police until the end of the war, never showing any inclination to break ranks or to flee to the West or 
to join the resistance. He he is absolutely a completely reliable and fanatical Nazi until the end of the war, until Hitler's suicide. And then another, um, I guess to say it, an obstacle in Filbert's life happens where he's actually put on trial. And this is after the Nuremberg trials. Um, is it after the, the doctor's trials as well when he is put on trial? It's kind of late for him, right? Yes, it's in the early 1960s. So all the Nuremberg trials uh, are over by that point. And uh, jurisdiction for, um, for trying Nazi criminals has already passed over to West Germany and to East Germany, um, the the victorious allies are no longer uh, trying Nazi criminals at this stage. That's now the responsibility of the two new German states. Uh, and in this context, uh, Filberts is then arrested in 1959. And after three years of gathering evidence, the West German authorities put him on trial in 1962 along with five of his officers from Einsatzkommando 9. And he's charged with the murder of thousands of Soviet Jews in 1941. And it turns out that Filbert really didn't have very good lawyer abilities. Um, this trial is uh, heavily against him. And he seems like he's um, once again kind of taking on that role of a victim, as you described. He was a victim when his brother was arrested and died and now he's a victim again in this trial so how does this trial affect Filbert's life yes exactly in spite of his training and his qualifications as a lawyer he doesn't do a very good job of um of defending himself at the at the trial and uh, evidently his 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 lawyer doesn't doesn't do a, his defense lawyer doesn't do a very good job Having said that, however, the evidence is, is stacked against him. It's it's clear um, that he's that he's guilty of, of what he's accused of, and there are multiple witnesses who um, who testify against him, including members of the commando itself, and they testify that he was an extremely strict and ruthless commander, and always wanted to be involved wherever he could be. Uh, took part in mass shootings himself, actually pulled the trigger on a number of occasions. So th the evidence against him is, is d absolutely damning. And he's then sentenced to life imprisonment, which is actually quite unusual. Um, many of the of his contemporaries, many of the other Einsatzkommando and Einsatzgruppen chiefs who were placed on tr trial uh they get away with far more lenient sentences uh and 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 Philbert sentenced to life imprisonment and this as you say is another uh opportunity for him to complain about his lot in life and how he's always the victim and it, 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 this this victim mentality that he has comes to the fore again and he, he blames everybody particularly his brother he regards himself as having been persecuted because of his brother. You know, even at this point when his brother, it's clear, has not survived the war. And yeah, then he then he's, uh, he spends the next uh, 13 years in prison until 1975. And uh, is then actually released 
on health grounds because he has failing eyesight. I think you made a really interesting statement about his sentencing. And one would think that finally, you know, they, they have sentenced this man who really played a horrible role in, in genocide, and especially in the uh, former parts of the Soviet Union. But instead you say, hey, you know, he was given a harsher sentence. But on the same hand, it really just demonstrates how bad the German courts were at prosecuting Nazi war criminals. So what kind of led you to that point in discussing the the career of this man and the sentence that he was claiming? Because 13 years in prison, being ripped of his citizenship doesn't sound like a really nice thing to have happen after all that time. That's exactly how he, how he sees it. And he, he, he complains to anybody who's willing to listen. And he compares himself with uh, other Einsatz commander chiefs who had committed crimes that were similarly heinous and perhaps also over an, a more extended time period. And he, he can't understand why he's been sentenced to life imprisonment when these other men haven't been. And the only conclusion that one can draw from that is, is not that Filbert was too harshly treated, but that so many Nazi criminals were treated too leniently. Um, and unfortunately, that was very much a pattern that people who had committed the most terrible acts, multiple murders, torture, um, you know, they, they got away, many of them scot-free, and others perhaps had to serve a few years in prison and then were released. And Philbert is one of those very few people who actually get the kind of sentence that their monstrous crimes deserved. Uh, but as I said, that's not the end of the story. He's actually released after 13 years. He doesn't spend the rest of his life in prison. And uh, he, he actually lives another 15 years after he's released. So the part that really had me hooked in your book that kind of pushes the ed edge of, of realism in which, you know, I could claim, you know what, this just can't possibly be true. Alex is writing a novel at this point is that he becomes <laughs> an actor playing an SS mass murderer in a movie that's made. And the couplet movie of how the movie was made is fascinating how did Filbert end up from being a Nazi um, genocidal accomplice to an actor in uh, one of, I guess you'd say, Nazi Germany's sons of um, one of the greatest film producers ever and directors that made the m movie Jutsus? Mm. Yes, this is, as, as you said, this is an absolutely bizarre episode, and I think when I found out about this during the preliminary research, this was then the clincher for me. I thought, okay, this is so bizarre that I have to, I have to write this biography. Um, yeah. The, you mentioned uh, Weithalan, who was uh, the preeminent Nazi film director effectively. And uh, his son, Thomas Harlan was everything that his father was not. And uh, 
he was he was determined to to bring as 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 many of the the crimes of the Nazis to light as he could, and as 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 many of the the Nazi criminals to justice as he could. And he spent years researching in in Polish archives, among other things. And he wanted to make a film about the continuity of Nazi biographies after the war in in West Germany. So many of these Nazi criminals were made made a, a relatively easy transition into life in in West Germany and uh, occupied quite senior positions in the judiciary, in the government, in the police force, uh, as university lecturers, as teachers. And he wanted to make a film about this. And he, he came across Filbert and he approached Filbert and actually told him, OK, I, I, want, I want to make a film about you. And uh, this was music to Filbert's ears because, uh, as, we've, as we've heard already, Filbert had a craving for recognition. Uh, he had a craving for ad- admiration and for attention. And here was the son of the great, I use that word in inverted commas, the great Nazi director, Veit Harlan, uh, wanting to make a film about Filbert's life. So, of course, Filbert said, yes, I'd love to be involved. Absolutely. When we start. But this wasn't Thomas Harlan's objective in making this film at all. He just told Filbert this. As I've said, it was very, about very different things. But he persuaded Filbert um, with a combination of flattery and uh, money. He persuaded him to take part in this film. And as you said, he played, well, effectively himself. You know, he played an SS mass murderer. And uh, yes, what can I say about the film? It's, it's a thoroughly bizarre film. I still in some ways don't know what to make of it. Um, but it was actually uh, released with a making of documentary film, which is extremely insightful. And it shows you the relationship between Thomas Harlan and Alfred Filbert behind the scenes. And uh, my understanding of Filbert really benefited from watching this documentary film. It seems like Filbert was really good at being a Nazi and really awful at being a person. He couldn't live with his family. He couldn't, you know, kind of clear his name in his opinion. And then he gets duped into this um, setup. You called it an experiment. The film was an experiment. And yes. it it just seems like I kind of want to feel sorry for him, but I don't. He has no, he really has no redeeming qualities except for that this, at the end of his career, he is involved in such th- an interesting thing that you got to go, oh, yes, I could see why you, you latched on the Filbert and why you wrote this book. So um, how did you come across the film? I mean, did you have to dig? Was it easy available? The film is, is not very easily available. It's now available in Germany on DVD, but that's a fairly recent development. Um, I cannot actually remember specifically how I came across the film now, but I tried to contact Thomas Harlan uh, fairly early on in my research. Uh, So I must have come across it at a a relatively early point. 
because this was already back in 2010 and that was the year I, I actually started the research on the book. And I contacted him as it transpired three weeks before his death. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was already extremely sick at that point and, and I never received a response to my inquiry. And as I say, I subsequently found out that he'd passed away, uh, which was, was, was a real shame. I would have loved to have spoken to Thomas Harland because I think he, he was a, a fascinating guy. Um, but I was very fortunate in being able to track down the, the onset interpreter for the film because most of the of the cast and crew were actually French speaking, and the film was was shot in France, just outside of Paris. And uh, Philbert didn't really speak any French, maybe just a few words, and and so they had a, an on set interpreter, Ursula Langman, and she basically did everything with Philbert. She wasn't just the the interpreter, but by virtue of the fact that she spoke German and French, she was. She she accompanied Philbert everywhere. She she did everything for him, and you know if she had to go to the to the tailors to be fitted for a suit, she went with him. If he went out for, to a restaurant for a meal, she went with him. Uh, and sh so it was it was a real find for me to to come across Ursula and to be able to meet with her and to speak to her several times. And she was just a mine of information and that was wonderful that she was willing to talk about her experiences with Alfred Filbert and on the set of this film. Uh, you mentioned it at one point that um, she went out to eat with him in a restaurant and she was trying to steer him away from this one place because it was heavily frequented by Jews, but they had to go ahead and do it. Um, I can see where talking to her really enhanced the points you're trying to make in this book because it's the irony and his uh, obliviousness to his own crimes is really what makes this a, a very tightly written and um, absolutely fascinating narrative. So how long did it take for you to research? You said you started in 2010? Yes, I started in 2010 and I had a let's say a workable draft of the manuscripts by mid 2014 so it was a, it was about 4 years of research and the initial writing phase um and then the book was published in spring 2016 i i would like to say so that um the listeners can understand just how well researched this book is you have original sources for all all of your material um, you would hardly have any published sources that even you accessed, and the footnotes are fantastic. Somebody could follow your trail to some extent to see how you put this entire thing together, but really, there, you have some magic in telling this story. Um, I would suggest for anyone that is even slightly interested in looking at a frontline killer, just to read your introduction, because it was compelling, and it was um, very cogent. I couldn't wait to get to the rest of the book after reading your introduction. And I, I can rarely say that about a lot of the books that are out there that um, you came across and researched a really highly interesting subject, but your own personal work is really what made it uh, the fabulous story that it is. I think taking on the perspective of 
a frontline perpetrator, as you described it, tells us so much more because Filbert had choices throughout his career. So have you thought about following this up with any other um, frontline SS men or is, what are you currently looking at in your research agenda? Well, firstly, let me thank you for those very kind comments. That's, that's much appreciated when someone spends this amount of time researching and writing a book. Uh, it's obviously uh, very gratifying to get that kind of feedback. And particularly when it's a book of this nature, because as you mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to comment briefly on that, that Filbert really did not seem to have any redeeming qualities. And he was a man who even at the very end of his life, never showed any kind of remorse or any acknowledgement of the suffering he'd caused. And so for that reason alone, it, it is difficult to spend so many years researching on and writing about a person of that nature. But at the same time, I think it's just so important to understand how it's possible for people to commit these crimes and also not just commit these crimes, but believe that they're doing the right thing in committing these crimes. Um, yeah, what I'm, what I'm doing now, I'm actually writing quite a different but related book. It's a, it's a history of Nazi mass killing. Uh, I'm, I'm writing that. I'm under contract with Yale University Press, and that will be looking at all the major killing programs, all the major instances of genocide carried out by the Nazis, not only, but including the Holocaust. Uh, so it's a similar subject matter, but I'm, I'm, I'm moving away for the time being from the biographical approach. But it is an approach that continues to fascinate me, and I think it's a very fruitful approach. And I also think it's a very accessible approach uh, and I think we can, with biographies of individuals, we can, we, we historians can, can perhaps reach a wider audience uh, than we can with non-biographical approaches to the subject. Uh, has anybody asked you to make a, um, to agree to film rights to make a, this story of Albert Filbert available in a cinema? Uh, yes, I have been approached regarding that. Um, well, you should be. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of you. Um, yes, it's not not yet signed and sealed. Um, the the di director in question is based in London, and he's currently attempting to obtain funding for this project. But he's he's very keen on it and really wants to bring it to the screen. Alex, I really wanted to thank you for talking with me today. This is I've been eagerly anticipating discussing your book. And uh, it really read like pure poetry. You chose every word uh, for a very specific reason. I can't believe that um, the the depth of your research, uh, you even codified um, the killings of the particular Einsatz group and unit to match the claims that they had made of how many of the Jews they'd killed and and this whole thing, it, it's just very well researched. Anybody looking for um, a good biography, not a happy biography, should read this. Anybody who has an interest in Nazi Germany should read this. And anyone who's looking for a different take on the Holocaust, I think, will really find this a fascinating read. 
So uh, thank you, Alex, for joining me today in this podcast. Thank you so much, Natasha. It was a pleasure.